Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. This is Jeff Steppen. Welcome. It is April 2021 as I record this. Today I'm happy to welcome back Kelly Vess, who was a guest on the show roughly four years ago when she talked about the complexity approach. For those of you who don't remember, I met Kelly at the 2016 ASHA convention. She was doing a poster presentation. Last time I spoke to her, she was talking about writing a book. It was in progress, and that book has finally come to fruition. It's called Speech Sound Disorders, Comprehensive Evaluation and Treatment. It's out as of April 2021 by the publisher Tima. That's T-H-I-E-M-E. And that book, it really is geared towards the working clinician. I say that with much enthusiasm, not to take away from academic textbooks, but um, what I love about the book is that it's not cookie cutter. It's not, here's how to do it in steps one, two, and three. As Kelly will talk, it's it's very inter- it's meant to be interactive. There's over 120 digital video clips, so you get examples of the things she's talking about, uh, therapy and practice. I myself am about two-thirds of the way through the book. I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. Um, it has challenged me and continually caused me to rethink on a global scale, how it is that I approach speech sound disorders in the populations that I work with. Little info on Kelly, for those of you who don't know, she is a working speech pathologist. She spent 17 years working as a therapist and researcher. She's had affiliations with local universities. She's a clinical instructor. She's mentored many graduate students and actively does her own research. Most recently, she's launched her own YouTube channel, Very diverse topics, everything from complexity uh, approach to using movements with ASD, apraxia, a lot of things on technology, using Google Slides, Canva, Um, really really great resources. I would highly recommend checking that YouTube channel out. And that is actually where we begin our discussion, how and why Kelly started her YouTube channel. Here's Kelly Vess. Okay, the YouTube channel, I did start the YouTube channel just recently. And the reason I started the YouTube channel is that this was an opportunity for me, uh, I think, to give a voice to what I wasn't hearing. So I'm not when I'm not hearing a topic that's extremely important that needs to be discussed, it was a way that to, to give that topic a voice. So for instance, recently I talked about the importance of fun. And that's a, it's a very important evidence-based practice. I know it doesn't sound serious. We need to talk about fun. We really do. But if children are having fun, we know that they're going to learn more quickly. We know that they're going to maintain the information. And we know that we're going to develop lifelong learners. So this really, really, really matters how fun our activities are. And when we talk about evidence-based practice, Why are we not talking about the importance of dopamine levels and cortisol levels in the learning experience and how we can optimize those those levels? I've never, ever been to a workshop on on how we can do so. And and it's so crucially important, uh, both short-term and medium-term, medium-term and long-term. So the YouTube channel just gave me a voice where I was able to say, let's talk about what we're not talking about that really does make a difference. Yeah, you, I've been, I've been looking at some of your videos. They're pretty, it's pretty, it is pretty eclectic. 
Um, okay. I'm, I'm looking at some, you know, some things that I just don't, you're like, I just don't see like you, you're across all your videos. There is a theme of how do you make things meaningful? Um, yeah. so I, that's what I've kind of come across uh, and I don't know how many, but you must have at least 15 videos up there at this point. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just taking a wild, a wild <laughs> guess here, but no, they, there seems to be a lot of uh, emphasis on meaning, making things meaningful and getting the most bang for your buck for the therapy time. And that to me is really cool. Of course, um, I watch your videos and I'm like, I always, you know, as I'm watching them, I'm like, God, I'm not doing enough to, to make it meaningful. Because as a school speech mm -hmm. pathologist, like you're always, you're putting out one fire after the other. And like, you know, yeah. and then you get yeah. to the, your, your next uh, kid of the day. And you're like, oh, I, I wish I had more time to prepare. <laughs> so you fall yeah. back, you fall back on what you did last time. Or yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of, there's so much uh, creativity. I think that we, we really have to, uh, instill in, the, in each therapy session so I, I totally agree with that um, i couldn't agree yeah i'm sorry no mm -hmm. no go ahead you were gonna say i want to talk about that meaningful because I, I think that's crucially crucially important and i actually i feel like robin hood because i read journals outside and out, disciplines outside of my field and from the field of occupational therapy they talk about task oriented intervention and that's where the child has a meaningful task to accomplish. And if, you, if a child has a meaningful task to accomplish, the child is going to perform at the highest level. And the child is with the child's unique body, unique mouth, unique structure, unique experiences that's unique to every, ch every individual. The child is going to perform at the most efficient level. So it, it, keep your hands off of the child. Give the child something worth working for, something, and you're going to see optimal levels. And, and, and once again, challenge creates change. When we have these meaningful activities, we're going to create them at a level that's at the child's challenge point. So that, that's that 80% accuracy level. If it's too high. They, if it's too high and they're 90%, they're not being challenged. They're not growing. If it's too low and it's 70%, then we know that they are there. It's frustrating. We know that we're risking habituating error patterns. So making it meaningful is so, so important, the learning experience. We want these children all in. We want them all in, not only in the mind, but also in the body as well. They're interconnected. So, yeah, thank you. And that's another thing. Have you heard of task-oriented interventions? Have you heard about making uh, meaningful uh, speech-language therapy activities meaningful ch for children? And how do we make them meaningful? Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, thank you for bringing up this incredibly important topic. Yeah, and, and uh, I have to say, so I, I, I can uh, mark a number of ways that your book is different from other books on speech pathology and specifically speech sound disorders <laughs> that I've read in the past. And you, I think a way to good summarize what you just said, it's, um, you infuse a lot of psychology in there. Um, mm -hmm. the zone of proximal developments, you're using uh, mm -hmm. uh, principles of behavioral analysis, you're using, you know, PBIS, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so any, anything you can mm -hmm. to motivate, anything you can to give self-control to the, to the child, to have clients mm -hmm. take over their, their mm -hmm. mastery and be in charge of their mastery and, and being invested in it. So that's what I, that's a big chunk of what I see in your book. And let's let's go back to the first time you came on here. You, we were talking about the complexity mm -hmm. approach. And for yeah, those yeah. listeners who haven't uh, already, go ahead and listen to that episode. 
Um, we met, mm-hmm. you know, Kelly and I met at a 2016 uh, ASHA convention. You're talking. Yeah, it was about... so fun meeting you. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, five years ago. For you too. <laughs> it was so fun meeting you. We both had drool coming out of our mouths reading research. Oh, this is. And I was like, what is this? You know, this isn't work for you. It was. It, I, I remember that. I was like, you, you're just. You love research. Yeah. And yeah. I, it's fun to run into you. I'm sorry for getting excited about that moment, but it was, no, it was, it, was, it was very serendipitous. Yeah, when I when I saw you, I was like, when I saw that poster, I was just really uh, impressed because again, you're and again, here's another big chunk of what your what makes your book different. Okay, in the normal in, in the everyday, and again, it's not putting down other books, but uh, what doesn't get talked about in our profession enough is speech sound disorders and children with intellectual disabilities or other, other disabilities, you know, you know autism, uh, Down syndrome. So just across the gamut of the like, populations that we see, um, when you read other books, it's not that there's not a lot, it's not that there's lack of theory and uh, use of current evidence. It's just that there's that void of what do we do with some of our most challenging clients? And you actually come out forefront and you're like, okay, I've done this complexity approach. Here's how I've structured it. I've ran my own studies. Here's what I got. So yeah. I don't want to go back and rehash all of that stuff. Yeah. The only thing I want to, again, I, I'm hoping that the listener will go back in um, and, and take a look at that. But um, to give like a, a very, I'll try and do this under 30 seconds. You know, you're using uh, three element consonant clusters. Yes. Um, you're yes. using yes. a single sentence, you know, like, can you scrape yes. it to me? Yes. Over yes. and over, you're trying to get 50 trials yes. in a session. You're doing some yes. carryover mm-hmm. activities with parents. Okay, so you're, you're yes. throwing all this stuff at, at them. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a number of things that sort of um, fly in the face of what many of us do. Again, just using only one target word. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Using a, a yeah. very difficult, again, three consonant clusters for kids who may not be, um, you know, barely stimulable for it. So, yeah. This yes. is this is what's uh, what's really amazing. Again, is is mirroring that evidence with a population that has, you know, in my opinion, has has been understudied uh, within the speech sound yeah, uh, yeah. realm. So, thoughts on that? Yeah. Oh, oh. You. And this is why, like, you do your homework, and you're like, let's talk about. The, and this is complex. There's a lot involved. And I love it. I love it. Okay. This is what I think is most important. I, I, I like this Bart Simpsons episode from 1996. And Bart moved to a new school, an affluent school district. And it, it had higher standards. And they put him in a special education, remedial education room. And they're like, we're going to work this week. Did you see this episode? I know. I'm writing well. the letter. Okay. <laughs> and, and Bart asked, he says, how does this work? We're behind our peers and we're going to do easier work. How are we going to catch up? Let me get this straight. We're behind the rest of our class and we're going to catch up to them by going slower than they are? 25 years later, we're still asking that question. And I, I want to take a step back and because this is really important to understand. A lot of people think that there's research against the complexity approach. And I want to go back to that study because that study is about 20 years ago, okay? And the study was by uh, Susan Ravishaw and I can't think of Michelle Nowak. Uh, uh, and uh, their study found that they gave one group of preschoolers. It was a beautiful study. It was about 50 preschoolers randomly assigned. 
It sounds great, but they gave one group a, a, high, a late developing sound, like an R, and they gave the other group an early developing sound, like a P. And they compared grapes to grapefruits. They said the children can, did made more progress with the letter P sound, the prescores did, than this late developing sound, the letter R. Ergo, the complexity approach doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Now, this is correlation does not equal causation. We do not change the course of human development. Sounds, I don't care what you're doing, what approach you're doing, sounds are going to develop like teeth. Earlier sounds will always develop before later ones and the latest sounds will develop last. So it's like teeth in that the central incisors, the front teeth are going to come first, then the lateral incisors, I don't care what you do, then the canines and then the molars. So it's the same way with speech. So the fact that the P developed before the R, I don't care what approach you're going to, you're doing, that's how speech will develop. And what happened is that's called correlation is not causation. Mm -hmm. So they said, so that train went right off the track, but then they made the false claim that this means that the complexity approach doesn't work. So when I'm teaching children like you mentioned that have autism spectrum disorder, and I'm working with three element clusters with them, they're not going to develop the three element clusters. They're going to develop pa, ba, ta, da. They're going to develop in the developmental sequence. What they're going to do is they're going to develop it quickly. They're going to run up those steps instead of moving slowly if I worked on the P sound. And I like the way Lynn Williams describes it. If you're using the developmental approach and you're picking the simplest targets, you're taking a chisel to a rock. When you do, when you do the complexity approach and you select the most complex targets, you're taking a firework to that rock and you're changing the child's linguistic system. So now we have the research on the complexity approach. We look at the complexity approach and, and vocabulary. We look at the complexity approach in pragmatics. We look at infinite. We have plenty of research in all domains of language that show that the more complex the treatment target, the greater the gains, period. Yes. And, and actually, this, uh-huh. this brings me to another point. In one of your YouTube videos, you were even talking about going for the macro versus the micro. So, mm-hmm. you know, getting mm-hmm. kids, you know, even mm-hmm. if you're working on language goals, you know, working mm-hmm. on, a, on a broad, on a very broad, you know, whether it's a storybook reading or something like that versus the drill and kill approach, which a lot of us still do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the basis for like things like, um, what's the, the mind wing, you know, uh, you know, these, these interventions for, you know, developing narrative skills, you know, that, that also work mm-hmm. on, you know, morphology and syntax. So it's, it's about really, yeah. you know, challenging them, raising yeah. the game versus drilling down into the very uh, particular. Um, yeah. Although in this case, yeah. in, in the speech sound realm, you know, you really are drilling in the particular to, to get that general. So it's not a great analogy what I gave, but, um, no, but you are no, raising, you know, the bar is high when you put a three, three element cluster there. So. Yeah, no, it's fabulous. The analogy you gave is so right on uh that what you described and and what i talk about it's like if if you go to a trainer and the trainer and and you're overweight or obese even and the trainer's like well i'm gonna have you do bicep curls i have 30 minutes a week with you you're not going to get any results 
You're just not. If the trainer says, you know, we're going to do full body movement squats, we're going to do, you know, squat presses, or we're going to do burpees, you're going to see results. We have to be very efficient with our time. The research indicates, I don't care how severe, and this is probably what you experience, the child is, you have 30 to 60 minutes a week. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. So are you, yeah, you can't, you can't with a child that has a very severe impairment. So you can't be doing bicep curls. You can't be doing calf raises. You have to do total body movements. And I like what you bring up also about the narratives, because I like Trina Spencer's work uh, out of Florida State, where she took story champs. It's very, very popular. Ah, yes. I just, it's yeah. funny. I've, I've just learned about story champs recently. Well, what did, what did she do? What she did is she did people, you know, cause you teach at the elementary level as well, right? Yeah. She took something that the, the elements of the story and you typically learn that in second grade. Yeah. Okay. You have the, you have the character, the setting, you get it, the action, the consequence. And she's like, let's teach this to preschoolers. And she used multimodal cueing, visual, and we, we and we but you get it the visual the kinesthetic and um and took a complex concept right to preschoolers with cognitive impairment with preschoolers with autism preschoolers that are second language English language learners and with preschoolers from Head Start populations as well as preschoolers with speech and language impairment across the board just like I'm finding in my work. Across the board, they're making incredible gains. Mm. So when the neuroplasticity is at a high level, we can rewire the brain. Mm. We, we can be agents of change. If, if you want to do calf raises, if you want to do bicep curls, you're not going to be an agent of change. But you can change the brain by doing more complex concepts when the brain is at um, uh, neuro, the neuroplasticity is at a high level. Yeah, no, that's really that's really cool. I think that uh, uh, so you like I said, you're bringing in elements from psychology, from the complexity theory. Yeah. You're trying to make things fun. You're being uh, you're using what I always call I think just as important as research is the art of speech pathology, how you make it yeah. meaningful to the kids. So all that is there. And one of the things. So last time we talked, I believe you're you know in terms mm-hmm. of the the this multi sensory cueing, I believe you yes. said you're you last time you were telling me I, I think you were using elements of prompt. Was that correct? Uh, no, no, I'm not using elements of prompt, and I and and, and I, I'm glad that you brought up prompt because yeah. Deborah Hayden, she's another one that she propelled our field forward because what she did is what about these children that don't aren't naturally learning to talk, that they're they're not perceiving the sounds correctly, they're not producing the sounds correctly, and by by us saying say blunt, it's just not working. Yeah, and she brought that multimodal. A research base. She built that base, which propelled our field forward. Uh, and so I'm very appreciative to her for, for saying, you know, multimodal cueing, it's an evidence-based practice for children with speech motor disorders, for children with autism. Uh, so, so she has really propelled our field forward. I, I must admit, I, I can tell you why I don't do prompt mm-hmm. is um, I, I am prompt trained, but, it, it, but I, I, I like the child touching the child's own face. If we're doing tactile cueing. And as we talked about before, because I like the intern, the child to take on the role as teacher. Mm. So, 
So the child's imitating the cues with me and the child is touching perhaps the child's own mouth for the buzz sound for the, the B, for instance, or, so, or, or for the, the K, and they're making their own horse bit mouth. I, I think learning is a very active process. And I ah. want the child, yeah. Now, when I you're using those hand cues, are you using, are you using prompt cues? Are you using like the surface, uh, the same ones that you've been taught? So do you do like for a B? I mean, the listener can't see me, you know, the little snap of the lips. Are you using something yeah, else? Something I love it. I, I love it. You're asking such great questions. I, I have, I, I'm, I must say, I've invent, invented all of my own prompts. And my graduate students, I've shown them to my graduate students and encouraged them to invent their own. Uh, and what we do is we look at what is incompatible. So let's talk about the child that fronts because we have a lot of that. They say T or D for K and G. What do they need to do? They need to get that mouth open. So I might have them put their hand in between their mouth, open their mouth up like a horse bit, a horse's bit. And by doing so, it's incompatible. There's, there's no way you can get your tongue up there with your mouth open. It just, it, it's just incompatible. So we think about incompatible prompts. And it's really important that the therapist feels what they're doing. People have asked me, why aren't you doing sign language? And I'm like, well, sometimes wait. This, <laughs> this looks like jazz hands to me. It kind of makes me smile on a dance, the sign for wait. Uh, I instead use prompts and cinema graduate students who are highly effective that, like I said, that we've invented ourselves that are incompatible to what the child is doing an incompatible behavior, speech behavior. And we put feeling into it. We put emotion into it. And, and when you're feeling it, and, and you know this, the kids are feeling it too. Yeah, again, you, you keep coming back to this element of fun and motivation. But getting back to the prompt mm-hmm. thing, I think what you, you said is very interesting because I've always, I always asked yeah. about prompt. I was like, why is a T a T? You know, how does X mark the spot with each sound? And I've always kind of theorized, it's not the necessary that you, you know, this Milo hyoid C or A or B, whatever. In certain cases, I thought to myself, you can do a prompt that was adjacent or neighboring or somewhat close to it. And as long as you were consistent with it and it was paired with the sound, you know, mm-hmm. those neurons would, uh, would make those connections within the kid and they would get the sound anyway. It's, it was, mm-hmm. so it, I don't know, I, I always wonder, like, is it necessarily, um, especially with like TD and N, you know, is there something mm-hmm. that really neurologically hits that spot and, and they're getting, they're able to get that lingual elevation? Or is it just mm-hmm. the, the consistency and the, the constant pairing? You know, that's something mm-hmm. I've always wondered about it, about with, uh, with prompt. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. uh, you, so the one mm-hmm. thing, getting away from prompt now, the, the one thing that you do talk okay. about in your book is DTTC, mm-hmm. DTTC yes. correct? Yeah. Um, could you yeah. just explain for those who are not familiar what it is, um, how, you, how you incorporate that into your therapy as well? Oh, yes, of course. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up dynamic tactile temporal cueing because for me, that is everything. That's what I really, really care about. When I see a child, I don't care about, and I don't think therapists should care about what a child can do. We're agents of change. What we need to care about when we're assessing a child is what a child could do. And what dynamic tactile temporal cueing does is it says, if I give you every cue, if I give you unison speech, if I give you temporal, which is the visual spatial cueing, if I even give you tactile touch cueing, if I do all of that and I do slowed speech, what can you do then? And that's what I care about. 
And that's where we start. We want to start at the aim high and start at the highest level possible. And what I found, we did research with dynamic tactile temporal cueing. Do we know it's best practice for childhood apraxia of speech? Yes, we know that it works. It's effective. But what about for all of the other children that have speech sound disorders? What we found is that when you do dynamic tactile temporal cueing for children with phonological impairment, for children with articulation impairment, for children with autism spectrum disorder, which present with their own type of speech impairment, and for children with cognitive impairment, when you give them dynamic tactile temporal cueing, they too respond. They too perform at a much higher level. And once again, challenge equals change. So I think that the dynamic tactile temporal cueing, we're talking about it, I think, in the terms of speech sound disorders. I use it in every aspect when I'm teaching language, when I'm teaching literacy. I bring on the maximum level of cueing. I go to the highest level possible, possible and then I, and that's scaffolding, and then you fade the cues out. You bring it back down. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you bring it back down. You pull them away, always maintaining that 80% accuracy level. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, I, I like how Edith Strand says it. She says, if you're below 80%, it's just luck. <laughs> so it, it, it's a dance. It's a dance. It's a dance. And you have to be present. And um, yeah. so, yeah. But, yeah, dynamic tactile temporal cueing is not only a gold standard for childhood apraxia speech. It's a gold standard for speech and language therapy. So it doesn't. So in other words, it doesn't even matter the SSD. It could be CAS. It could be phonological. It could be inconsistent. Yes. Uh, yes. It's speech, speech sound disorder. Sound disorder. Yeah, they really benefit from it. Yes. Yeah. Because you, yeah. Yes. Yes. I, yes. And yes. So that's that's what I'm saying. All of these children. Yes. Yes. That and we've done the research. We said, okay, well, let's just have the child say the word. Say blank. Okay, now let's do DTC and let's see what happens then. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at an improvement of not 10%. You're looking at an 80% improvement on average. These children that were getting 10% of the words correct with simple imitation prompt are getting 80 per, 80% of the words correct or 90% of the words correct when you provide DTDC. Mm-hmm. So, so if you only have 30 minutes a week, and you want to induce change, work at the child's highest level possible when neuroplasticity is at the highest level, and you're going to get amazing gains. So I I, I love, you're talking about so many interesting, you bring up so many interesting topics, but I want to go back to the kids with autism and, 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 and dynamic tactile temporal cueing with them and how that all came about on accident. Can I tell you about the cornflake moment I had that changed therapy? Yeah. This is amazing for me. So this was a big breakthrough. Okay. All right. So we know that for the past 30 years, since we've started collecting research on children with autism spectrum disorder, we have not been doing a very good job on expressive language. The outcomes have not improved over the last 30 years. So as Albert Einstein would say, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again to no effect. But that's what we've been doing. Okay. So it's not working. What I did is I was running the speech sound disorder summer program and all of these children with autism were enrolling at it. 
And it was just like, well, you know, we got to teach these kids to talk, you know, like, I was just like, this is for articulation and phonological disorder and people with speech sound disorders. Well, well, we only have five sessions, so let, let's work on speech sound disorders with them as well. And let's see what happens. Mm. You know, we're going to we're going to focus on that. And what happened is the children with autism and granted, this is only three children in the group that I had with autism that, that joined. They made amazing gains. They made the greatest gains. They made gains that surpassed the other children with, with mild to severe speech and language impairment. They they made huge gains. They, were these kids were these kids already they were already verbal, correct? They were oh, verbal. I like, like you're asking such good questions. Okay, yeah. That's okay, a big enchilada I want to get to tonight yeah. about as non-speaking uh, children. One of them was one of them. Yes, one of them was not. One of them was pre-verbal. Ah, and okay. uh, the other two, the other two were the other two were verbal. So, but you know, I, I'm doing traditional therapy with them. I'm focusing on pragmatic communication. Let's focus on language, answering the WH questions. I wasn't focusing on their speech sound disorder. That that was like icing on the cake. Yeah. And when I did focus on the speech sound disorder and I used the dynamic tactile temporal cueing approach, they made huge gains not only in speech, but in language and in social communication as well. So I it, this was my cornflake moment that I that happened on accident where it's like, well, we'll just work on speech with him, you know, for the summer, for these five sessions. And they skyrocketed. And then I looked further and, and, and we had other cornflake moments where I thought, we're not treating the speech motor disorder. For the children with autism spectrum disorder, we're not treating the speech motor disorder. And these children, as a result, are not going to naturally learn to talk. So our field is so behind. And that, well, first of all, we're not acknowledging that these children have a speech motor disorder, which they clearly do. And I say that because they have damage in the area of the cerebellum that's responsible for auditory perception of sounds. And they also have damage in the cerebellum, which is responsible for motor production of speech. But yet we expect these children to naturally learn to talk. And we're not acknowledging they have a speech motor disorder, which they do. And we're not treating it. And they're not learning to talk. So this was my my big eureka moment. And then another by accident moment I had <laughs> was with kids with autism. They they're just tricksters. They 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 teach you, they school you, don't they? They're my yes, they do. Right? It's, you know, kids with autism too. These are my professors. They're these are my master class professors. Those they you will learn more from them than anyone on the on the planet Earth we have here. And another day what happened was I thought, okay, we're going to do this research assignment, and we're going to see, using the sentence strip, if the kids talk more, if we wait three to five seconds before we give them the toy that they request, or if we immediately give it to them. Okay. We found there wasn't a difference with the children with autism. But what we did find, once again, a cornflake moment, these are moments that happen by accident, just like how cornflakes were invented. I hope that 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 happened by accident there was some wheat that was burnt and then there's cornflakes instead of throwing it away they made it a cereal okay this is an accident we were like these children 
are making so many, so much more vocalizations when they're moving. Oh, a lot yeah. More vocalizations when they're moving. Definitely. So, then, so they were, okay, and like they have a speech motor disorder. You know, us, we look at kind of children's heads, we tend to look at their heads and kind of forget everything else. And then I'm like, and, and then when we're moving, they're vocalizing these children who are pre so much more, not a little bit more, a lot more. And especially at younger ages, the younger ones were vocalizing so much more if they were moving instead of sitting. So then, and like, what's going on here? Like, I, I just kind of all got to figure this out. And then what I started noticing is the children, and, and you know, Jeffrey, you work with these children, the children that don't learn to talk, they keep us up at night. They, they're the ones that keep us at the drawing board. We try everything under the sun to help them. Am I not right? Jeffrey, is that you too? There, yeah. You so, go there's so much to unpack there. That, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, yes, we're working on augmentative communication from day one. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But we tried it all. We, we've done back bends and flips and everything else for that. To, to, and, and it took me 16 years to kind of figure this out. But I'm like, the kids that aren't talking, guess what? They're, they can't sit up either. And, and, and I looked at these kids and I looked at their bodies. And these are the kids that are falling over when you see them in group time. And these are the kids that can't take three steps independently from one place to another. And these are the kids that are slumped over with their mouth open at rest. These are children that have a motor disorder in the body. And we know that the core, I mean, I just have to take a step back and look, and the core develops first, the core, then the proximal muscles to the core, the shoulders, the arms, the limbs, the neck. Last is the distal, last is the eyes, the control of the eyes, last is the control of the mouth, last is the control of the fingers and gestures. These children can't even get off the floor. So when I look back at my children that keep me up at night, my my children that give me nightmares um, that I've worked with over the years, I look at them, all of them had severe motor disorders in the body that were not being treated. Uh, so, but yet we expect these children to fly, right? We, so we were like, this child's not talking because this child has a cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. When it's like, the fact is the child can't even sit up independently. This goes so to, think- uh, um, oh, who was it? The Robert yeah. Michael Walsh or someone from the talk tools land. I think, I don't know who to attribute this, uh, what you see in the body you get in the mouth. Yes, yes. That Patrick, is it Duffy? What's the guy's first name? Oh. Duffy, Joseph Duffy, yeah. the, the famous. Yeah, and he says, look and look. The first thing he does when he says he does an evaluation, he, he looks out the window, looks in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And he looks at the person in the parking lot, and then I'll tell him uh, like 90% of what he needs to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but, 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 but let's get, like, getting back to these, these kiddos, it's just like, these kiddos that can't even sit up, we, we want them to talk. And then we're saying, and then I hate that one. This is a real pet peeve of mine. We say, well, well, they're not, and they want them to interact and play, you know, which is really complex motor movements. And then we look at our paperwork and our IEPs at our schools. And what do they say? Uh, greater interest in objects over people. Yeah. Like, how archaic is that? So here is a child that's not receiving physical therapy, that's not receiving movement intervention, 
that can't even independently set up that has, we know from the research that it's estimated 90% of children with autism have a movement disorder. They're no more likely to receive intervention for it, even though the research shows they really benefit from mm-hmm. physical therapy intervention intervention and movement intervention. They do a lot. We're and by the way, them- you know, I was thinking as you're talking about this, <clears throat> the other yeah. thing, the other thing I see in, in the vast majority of those kids also is the W sitting. Uh, indicative of that weak core. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, 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 they, yeah, the, yeah, and the, the, we know how how bad that is. And it, and what are we doing instead? It's just so. I, I just think that we have to look at what have we been doing for thirty years and stop doing the same thing that we've been doing for thirty years. We have to first acknowledge the movement disorder and that the movement disorder. These children are being grossly underserved. It's just unethical. It's illogical. It's inexplicable. It makes no sense. And we have to stop thinking that these children can fly, that a child that doesn't, as you were saying, that doesn't even have core strength. I mean, these children, I'll put them in a bucket seat and they're almost like, you know what I mean? They're falling, leaning forward like they're going to fall on their heads. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, and they're supposed to talk. So children don't have wings. You know, children can't fly. And I, I, I think it's time when we're pointing at that child and we're saying, you have a cognitive impairment. Your child has a cognitive impairment. Or your child is not interested in, in learning to talk. There's three fingers pointing back at the therapist. And I think that the intervention is where the cognitive impairment lies. And I think, and also this idea of mind reading and looking at a child that doesn't even have the basic skills and saying, it's like saying someone with cerebral palsy is, is mentally impaired because they can't tie their shoes. It's, it's, it's that crazy. Yeah, that, that's that been it, kind of a pet peeve of mine over the last uh, number of years, especially, you know, I've become <laughs> so interested in that one third of the ASD kids, minimally nonverbal or non-speaking, yeah. depending on your, but you know, they just that, you know, the, the eye gaze studies uh, that have come out recently yeah. about how when you look at um, you know, just doing something like a P by picture vocabulary test and you don't rely on the traditional ways mm-hmm. of giving it, but you just will look at their, yeah. you set up an eye gaze system, um, and mm-hmm. see what they're looking at and how s- these kids have done pretty well on that. Um, or when yeah. you give something like a, instead of a, um, a verbal uh, intelligence test, something like the Tony, um, mm-hmm. nonverbal intelligence. And you're finding that I remember one study, something like uh, of the sample, I can't remember how large it was, something like 60% of them mm-hmm. scored in the, in the average range. Um, so it was, uh, pretty, it's it's pretty amazing. It just, you know, I, I, I try to approach every kid these days with a a blank slate, you know, just saying, I don't know. I really, I don't know. I don't know what, what truly they understand right now. I'm not sure what they're, are, what they're capable Mm of. So, uh, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we have to stop mind reading. We, and trying to guess. it's so sad because professionals will even go as far as to tell parents, well, your child is not interested in people. Or what? Your child is more is interested in trains instead of people. So, you know, yeah. this is crazy. Yeah, it, it is I, crazy. And especially yeah. in light of, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, in 2021, I can't believe we still have to keep telling people that, you know, not looking is not the same thing as not paying attention or not thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the eye contact oh, thing is like, we feel, I feel like that should be just settled and done already. Um, yes. you know, but you know, I hope, 
Again, pet peeve, but I hope no one's forcing kids to look at them <laughs> constantly. Yeah. Look at me, look at me. <laughs> look at me and then lose the attention altogether. Um, yeah. And anyway, so I want to, so I, I guess, I guess the takeaway for you is, especially for the kids um, who are really impaired, is to get them moving during therapy. A really simple oh. intervention. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. This is such a fun interview. Yeah. You're talking about all the most important topics. Well, you know, yeah. for certain kids, I've, yeah. I, I've, I've talked to my OT about this. Yeah. I've brought yeah. up this thing so many times. I, I've said to, um, you know, about certain kids on my caseload, I'm like, you know what this kid needs? This kid basically needs to be in the sensory room all day. Yeah. And that's yeah. where all the learning needs yeah. to take place, um, uh-huh. or at least 90%. But I mean, obviously, we're in a school system, and it's like, how do you make that happen? <laughs> but, uh-huh. you know, um, for some kids, I just feel yeah. like they need that much. Yes. Yes. Um, I, lo- I love talking about the let's talk about that movement because it's so important that like as you're saying with the movement activities um as you were saying what i look at movement is it's a way to target the cerebellum okay so if you really want to make a difference in this child's life as a, as a person you want to teach them executive function right at, at the preschool level and that's what you can do with movement you can have a multiple step thing Maybe like we're going to go really simple here. Okay. Let's just go really easy. Suppose it is as simple as catching a fish. So they have to go catch a fish and they have to go put it, the fish in the bucket. And then they have to go down and check that they caught the fish. That multiple step process is going to change the cerebellum. Does that make sense? In which you're improving executive function, in which you're improving complex movement skills, visual, temporal, spatial skills, and the speech and language skills. You're not, yeah, so yeah, you can get so much more accomplished. And like, as we mentioned before, when children are moving, the cortisol level and the dopamine levels are at an optimal level for learning, for, for picking up information, for retaining information. Yeah. And mm. all, and I'm going to tell you this right now, movement activities, I, what I do is I do one or two, really I have two set up in my room, two movement activities, whatever the theme is, this week it's music. And all of the children do the movement activity. It's the same activity, whether the child needs to work on R and L distortions or whether the child uh, needs to work on augmentative communication and, and, and learning to communicate. And, and it's, it's equally, it's, it's beneficial for all of them, all preschoolers. So, and so you're creating a plan for them. Gains, and, and they're going to remember these gains. Hmm? So you're making like a, a movement plan, a sequence of, uh, of every single week. Like today, we're going to do this, this, first, we're going to do this, then, yes. then Y, then Z. Um, yes. Yeah. There's a real, it's task oriented. Mm-hmm. So there's a mission. They've got a, they've got a plan. They've got to check it. It's multi-step. It's executive function. It's really important. It's, yeah. So, yeah. So let me, and, let me drill and, your brain here. I, I, I just drill your brain. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me drill down to yeah. this one question. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've taken definitely a notice of working on speech more so than I ever have um, mm-hmm. in, in the previous, you know, eight years at my district. And yeah. here, here's where I am, especially you know, with the kids with ASD. I, I uh-huh. can, I'm having some success uh, imitation of oral movements blowing the thing where i get stuck time and time again is voicing Uh now i Uh haven't i haven't used i haven't used movement as much as i should but that being said i'm just curious what what would you say uh, as to, to me what would you say about 
trying to, you know, they can get, they can imitate basic gross movements. Maybe they can imitate some signs and some gestures. Um, they can attend to what you're trying to do, but that voicing, yes. you know, where I have yes. kids who are just sitting there, I'm doing like a visual yes. cue or, and I'm, I'm holding up my hand right now and they're imitating, no, but yeah. yet, but nothing's coming out. Yeah, I, I know. It's so sad. And they're opening their mouth and they're, they're giving you all this struggle and they're looking at you. And, and, the, and the, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you bring up is so important. And that's why some experts estimate that minimally verbal and pre-verbal children with autism spectrum disorder, you could say they fit childhood apraxia speech. And that idea of coordinating, like you're saying, they're not coordinating their articulators with the vocal fold, the voicing production. It's that orchestra of speech. They can't put it together. And you're looking at them with their mouths open and nothing's coming out, right? And they're looking mm-hmm. like they want it so badly. That is, that is, I mean, what you're bringing out is, is, so, uh, is so important. You know what I've learned? Uh, I, I'm just going to say what I've learned, you know, because I've learned from failing. You want to hear? Let's hear it. You know, I've learned from graduate school, you learn nothing is free, right? And you yeah, hold definitely. off for patients, right? How's that working? Okay, I'm just going to put pressure on you to do what you're worse at <laughs> and really put you in fight or flight mode. So there's no way you're going to be able to speak then. And then you're going to have a tantrum. Am I not right? Yeah, no, right? totally. Because, and that's where the brain research has given these poor kids with autism a voice, these children with childhood apraxia of speech a voice, because we know that the area of brain of the cerebellum responsible for consistency is damaged. So now the child's not being lazy and now the child's not being stubborn. Their brain cannot consistently yet produce speech. But by, well, we're just going to make them. <laughs> and, and, you know, I did the research and I was just like, you know, I'm finding, and I don't know if this is what you're finding, when you make them talk, they're going to talk a lot less, right? <laughs> you're going to get less vocalization. Yeah. A, well, you know, I, I did take, I, so I took a course. Um, I, I won't yeah. name the course, but it was, it was an ABA uh, online course okay. I took last summer. And it was talking okay. about different approaches to getting vocalizations. And, you know, it, it wasn't during a motor-based activity. It could have been like bubbles. And it was, it looked very much yeah. like pivotal response treatment where you okay. held up the item, you said, yeah. you said the word or whatever. It, and they, I can't, I'm trying to remember, the, there's, a, there's a term for, you know, two paths towards prompting. And so in one yeah. path, one path, so one path was like, I, I, I'm like, oh God, I'm going to apply this to one of my kids. It'd be perfect for it. So I, was, I think uh-huh. one of my students who has, and we have students who have a very low tol- toler- uh, tolerance for mm-hmm. frustration, right? So, yeah. what, so one, in one queuing, in one prompting hierarchy, what you're doing is you're counting on them to get angry. And so what you're doing is you're like, let's say it's oh, like bubbles. God. You're like going bubbles. Oh, no. And they're saying, and they're doing oh, nothing. No. And you're, and you're, no. Oh, no, you're just doing ba, right? You're doing ba and nothing. No. Ba. And then all of a sudden they go, <laughs> no. they get angry. They're going, ah, bubbles. No. Oh no! And you don't believe in that, okay? No, no, that's so horrible. That's so sad. I wish I could remember the term for that, but there's there is a term for doing that. (laughs) Crazy, that's so you don't agree with that? Crazy. What we know from the research is displeasurable vocalizations are actually really bad. Like (laughs) they're 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 created with uh, worse outcomes in speech development. But no, you know. You know, last time I gave you a lot of secret sauce. I was like, okay, let me tell yes, you, this you is how it's done. 
And I'm like that. I'm like, I'm just going to tell you everything I know. But mm. I will tell you, it took me, I mean, hey, I had to fail. I had to do what they taught me in graduate school and what the research says to do, the Amelia approach, right? Guess what? I, I invented a new new approach, okay? Mm-hmm. Let me just tell you about it. And this is my next book, okay? It's, it's coming. <laughs> and this approach is actually, what I do is multimodal cueing, dynamic tactile temporal cueing. I'll even do hand over hand with the child and how to produce the sound. I always work on look at first, not I want, okay? So we're going to look, and I'm making the L sound, the L's with them. My hands are over their hands. You can see it on the website. Hand over hand. It's fun. I just ate those fingers like they're French fries. The kids love it. And then I fade out. Backward fading. That's a good technique, right? Mm -hmm. And the child then is imitating my multimodal cueing. I'm not hold, touching them anymore, right? Mirror neurons, right? You like that, Jeb? Mm-hmm. That's good for social development. Really, really good. Now, think about, if we think about the cerebellum, it's like a peach, okay? In the back of your head, it's like the size of a peach, and it connects to every area of the body, and it's responsible for 90% of the neuronal activity in your brain, okay? It's small, but it's the engine that could and does everything, okay? It's the CEO. Now, when I'm doing dynamic tactile tempo cueing and that child's moving those arms and moving those fingers, guess what else comes out? Speech. So what I'm doing is focus stimulation of the brain, but that's how you get speech. Yeah, that's a million dollars. It's worth it. It works. Well, I'd like so, to try some more. Yeah. Yeah. So then the child talks. And what am I doing? I'm doing DTTC. I'm doing slow echo unison with the child. We have the limbs moving as well. And I even find that the speech oftentimes doesn't come until the fingers come. So, for instance, the child's doing an L sound, and they're doing it like YMCA with their palms. When they get those fingers making the Ls, then the comes. Yeah, because that area of the brain is stimulated. And then they, and because of mirror neurons, what happens? They mirror your speech. Okay. So so have you ever had a kid for whom you've not been able to achieve voicing? Oh, oh my goodness. Of course. I told you I I wasn't always this good. I mean, in recent, in recent uh, history. So like, let's say the last two years, say. In recent history. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. What has happened recently, like I used to be like the statistics, I would used to be, what, 30%, 25% of the children were pre-verbal when they went on to kindergarten. I, that's not the case anymore. Now it's more like 10%. Which so is amazing. Course, yeah, yeah, it's it's huge. It, but I'm not done yet. I, I, I'm every year, it's less and less and less. Um, but, the, but like I said, this is get that motor imitation Get the imitation with the limbs and the fine motor. And that cerebellum is lit up like a light bulb. And because of the mirror neuron activity, they're going to imitate the speech as well as the movements. So it's right sandwiched in between the two. So that is how we're going to teach these children with autism to talk. Mm. We're treating, what are we doing at the end of the day? We're treating the speech motor disorder that our profession is not even acknowledging exists. Yes. So I think I think that the MRI research, the neuroscience research, is what is going to give. Keep your eyes on the neuroscience research out of Harvard. Uh, I can't think. Jeremy, oh, he's got the worst name in the world. Uh, <laughs> gosh, Muggle Booger. It's the, it's the worst. 
hardest pronounced name you can imagine. But Harvard Research right now is looking at the cerebellum and they're saying, okay, if the child has autism, the damage is here, 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 and this is what you're going to see as a result. And if the child has dyslexia, that's totally different. There's damage in the brain too, totally different profile. If they have ADD, they have damage there as well, totally different profile. And if they have childhood protopraxy of speech, they have damage in the cerebellum in a totally different area. Okay, so is this where the is this where the our profession and and uh and speech production. Okay, let me back up. So you've been talking a lot about the cerebellum. Yeah, yeah. We need Broca's, to talk about What the about Broca's area? Broca's area and the temporal region, uh-huh. parietal temporal area. Factories. You're talking about the factories. And once again, it's like, yeah, you can work on the, the bicep curls. You can work on the calf raises. You're better off working on the cerebellum. Look at the damaged areas of the cerebellum and focus your efforts there. So let me give you an example of this cerebellum. How does that translate to you and I in therapy? And you have already talked about that with the coordination of voicing. It, you know, this has to do with the coordination occurs in the cerebellum of articulators and vocal fold production, right? So you see that child that has the mouth open and nothing's coming out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But we talked about how we're going to fix that. We're going to get those arms and fingers moving and pair that with speech. And we're going to get the vocalizations coming out as well. And then it's going to become proximal vocalizations. And then they're going to become words. So right? all this, so you can, so yeah. as much as you can, pairing, pairing, yeah. pairing movement, just gross motor and fine motor, their fingers, their limbs, everything, um, obviously yeah. tailored to their interests and tailored to what they can do. Um, yeah. But no, this is, this is really good. And, and by the way, yeah. so question. So now you yeah. have, what's great about your Fun. book is there's a lots of uh, video examples. You have links. Yeah. You, yeah. You yeah. have video examples of these in the, in your book links. I haven't said, I haven't seen any yeah. of those yet. Oh yeah, of course. The book has over a hundred uh, videos, video um, clips. Um, and I love the video clips because the video clips are very unique. Uh, each of them are uniquely brilliant. And, and I think that's one thing, I, and you know this, Jeff, because you've seen so much, you've interviewed so many people, is there's many different ways to hammer a nail. And actually, the most uh, effective graduate student, I've, I've studied over 50 um, now, the world's biggest introvert. And I, when I interviewed her, I was concerned. Because I'm like, I think I'm probably like you. I work with ADHD a lot. And I think, well, you have to be bigger than life when you're working with these children to capture their attention and maintain their attention. Yeah. And, and that's not the case. Uh, that's not the case. And that's what I like. I love about this book is that we can't compare each other. You can't, we can't compare each other. Everyone is brilliant. Everyone is unique and everyone has a brilliant skill set they bring to the table. And, and that's what you're going to see in this book. You're going to see these graduate students are totally different from each other and they're totally brilliant and you can't compare them and we can't compare each other. And that's, and that's what I like about the book. The book isn't, if you're not going to like this book, if you're like, if you're one of those people like, tell me what to say and tell me what to do. I want a script. No. So often we fall back on that. (laughs) This is not, no, 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 no. Because this book, learning is an active process. This book, if you, as a reader, you are going to dance with this book. This book is going to show you, this is, these are the strategies, how to be effective. Okay. This is, these are the strategies, how to be efficient, 
how to how do you tackle speech, language, and literacy all at once and make a difference when neuroplasticity is at the highest level? How do you really make a difference in 30 minutes? It'll show you how to do that, how to change, like you were talking about the psychology. The ultimate goal of therapy is that the child becomes the teacher. Yeah. And the child leaves. I'm in charge of whether or not I'm successful or not. My effort matters because the children we work with and, and you get to see them at the elementary age as well and how hard it is and the challenges they face, they will have to work harder. So they're going to need to know that their efforts matter and that they can be successful. And I think that's the ultimate goal of therapy. If I taught them, you're the teacher. And if you mm -hmm. work hard to be successful, I've, I've done my work. I yeah. mean, that's like drop the mic. Yeah. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. Uh, yeah, and drop the mic. Uh, the echo mic. I mean, it's a little that's the plastic echo mics. <laughs> <Dollar> store, <laughs> the right? echo mics. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so but and, and also if we taught them that learning is fun. So yeah, so we, we we're doing I what what were we talking about here? We kind of got down a rabbit hole. We did. No. Um well I have but, to say oh, 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 I, No, I do want I do I do want to tell you really about what the book is about in that yes. sense. Is that it's going to give you that, but the book understands that that the reader brings more to the table than the book does. Mm. And the book is a dance with the reader, and the book is like you take this and you make it better. You're going to take, and the book is kind of like clay, and the reader is kind of like the, is the artist. And the artist is going to create something better than the book, for sure. Mm, because like the artist is bring, yeah, unique gifts to the table. Yeah. Everyone has unique gifts to the table. Um, people, I, I do believe that. I think people are miracles. People are miracles. And, and it, I've never said, well, this therapist is better than that therapist. But they're all, you can't compare them. People are, are amazing, uniquely brilliant. And that's what, it, well, we're not going to talk about this because this isn't about the topic, but we're talking about journalism. That's why I like you so much, Jeff, is because you're original. You do your homework. You have your own ideas. You bring new ideas to the table. And, and if you can't do that, then artificial intelligence can do a better job. <laughs> be replacing all of us SLPs in 50 years <laughs> and that, you know well you know, maybe we'll, maybe not that's a, topic. that's a whole different topic of course <laughs> yeah COVID they probably kind of got a crack at it on COVID no but uh yeah but no they and that's the thing and so this is the the book is all the the book like I said I think the book is so special because the book for me is so special because learning is an active process and the book is it, the, whatever the reader brings to ta the table in the book is so much more important than the book. The book gives you the materials. Like this is what you need to be awesome. Now take it and make it better. You can go in many directions with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you actually remind me in terms of the, the playful creative aspects of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I've had Marge Blanc on the show. She was one of the early guests at, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been to her okay. clinic and I just mm -hmm. see, you know, her whole clinic is about fun. Um, it's just, it's a lot of lycra. Yeah. It's a lot of trampoline, okay. a lot of jumping, a lot of movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's all about that. So I, I definitely see in the time yeah. between what you're doing, what she's doing. The magic in speech language therapy isn't in the exercise. It isn't in the child producing the sound correctly, the child answering the question, the child doing the narrative correctly. It's those magical moments in between. It's when my intern is doing the ambulance sign, whoa, 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 
and the child's falling off him. That, yeah, that that's where the magic happens. That's where you're you're creating a memorable experience. This child's going to remember that they love learning. That they, I mean, yeah, the moments in between is where the magic happens. Where the child is doing the bumblebee sound. And the intern rolls on her back and her feet goes up in the air because she was stung by a bee. Yeah. That, that was the most important part of therapy. That was the, that's where she earned the big bucks. The right there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Marge, if you're talking about the, she's the one that talks a lot about the speech, gestalt language, the person yeah. Marge Blanc mentioning versus generative language. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, her so, book I've had is one of the most important books I think that I've I've read in okay. um, in the last ten years on autism. Um, okay, good. Whole understudied the whole Akalele thing, like very understudied yeah. and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. okay, so here's the the one of the biggest questions that I have tonight. So mm-hmm. I, I made a mistake. I yeah. should have reached out to you uh, shortly after my first podcast because I yeah. I immediately tried taking your uh, approach using a three element cluster with a, he was probably fourth grade at the time. And don't worry folks about privacy. This is like a student I had seven years ago, six years, probably six years ago. No, actually five years ago. Right. So, and he was a boy, uh, down syndrome, he had uh, open mouth Mm -hmm. posture. And um, so was he stimulable for, you know, three element blunt? Yes. With a big butt. And here's, here's my big question. What do you do when you have a kid who is quote unquote stimulable for a three element constant cluster, but they have a, a very pronounced interdental lisp. This is where, Uh this is where, um, structure, palatal vault, high narrow palatal vaults and that's, that's the whole other, um, that's the whole other, uh, vault I want to open up and explore right now with you. Uh, now you're talking, now you're talking anatomical with me now. There are right. anatomical differences in which the, the, the mouth is smaller. It's not mm-hmm. that the tongue is smaller. And you're like, what are you going to do about that, Kelly? Because suppose if I said, well, the, does the child have a cognitive impairment? Yeah, the child has a significant cognitive impairment as well. Now, what are you going to do, Kelly? I, you know, you're asking a good question. I haven't had that situation yet. I have had children Down syndrome with the lisp, we got rid of it. Because the research indicates you could have a no palate. You could have the most compromised mouth imaginable and speak well through compensation. So what this child, I I can't talk about this child because I don't know this child, but I have I have worked with children with Down syndrome that did that did that did suppress that frontal lisp, but I'm working with them when they're three. Yeah. I don't know. I bet it might be too late, too habituated at, at fourth grade. That's, that's what I was thinking. Like, this is a habituated thing. Yeah. yeah so this is, I, I think for the last yeah. few years, you know, I've, I've really been exploring yeah. the whole Ensami thing in what place, you know, yeah. oral facial myology has just exploded. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm still trying to wrestle with the, the intersection of that and phonology and how it all fits together and what I'm, what okay. I'm responsible, what I should yeah. be uh, working on and what I just yeah. need to refer out for. Because I think, you know, especially yeah. my last interview was last summer with uh, mm-hmm. Linda D'Onofrio and, you know, her big thing yeah. is, you know, before she that. even thinks uh-huh. about uh, speech sound, she's thinking about structure yeah. and she, yeah. her expression is sometimes mm-hmm. a kid just needs a better running shoe. 
you know? And mm-hmm. so if the mouth is not yeah. fitting together right, you know, something's got to uh, be done. But, you know, you make a good point. You're working mm-hmm. with the preschool population. Yeah. Um, they're still growing. The, you can probably find compensation. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's just something I'm going to have to continue yeah. to, to learn on my own and figure out. Um, but I mean, yeah. I guess the point of, I guess the point you're making though is that you could find a preschooler who is stimulable in the sense that they're doing, you know, nest PR blend, say, but yeah, the, the, the yeah. S is an, an interdental and you can still work on that yeah. within that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely working on our because it will habitually do tackle that early as well as the last thing, the latter on the frontal list. But yeah, I, I listened to your interview with her and I, I, I just feel like I'm working with a different population than she is because yeah. I have to come in that are covered in drool and with huge cheeks and mouth breathing, but they don't have, I think, these craniofacial abnormalities that she was mentioning. Mm-hmm. I haven't worked with them, but I find, get them on three element clusters and guess what? The drool has gone in two months uh, because that's the, the, the hardest thing you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I never, ever, ever have done with any um, client uh, exercises. What are they? And I know this is different, but she's doing is something different, but um, yeah. non-speech exercises. I've never done non-speech exercises with a client. And by having them, speech is hard. Yeah. Complex questions are hard. And, that, and the, that'll tone up those issues quicker than anything. Um, so that's, that's what I have. And, and I, I do have that in the book. I have a picture. Well, here is a girl and you look at her face and her cheeks are like, you know, five times bigger than, than normal with mm-hmm. the normal limits. And you look and she did the consonant clusters and you look at a year later, there's absolutely no weakness. There's n- there's no structural differences, you, you know? So I, that, that's just, that, but I think she's working with more. I listened to your interview with her. She's fun. Yeah. Yeah. She's fun. She <laughs> <I'll hear that. laughs> yeah. She's a fun, she's fun to listen to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, but then, you know, and, and she, she has a good point because she, uh, I liked one of the points she made, which is very true. The field of speech sound disorders, how much research do we have? Very little. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have research for something, that doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't work. But I, I would, at the same time, I only do, for my own practice, every detail of my practice is evidence-based. Most of it is my own research. Uh, but yeah, it, you know. Um, well, you know, I'm going to circle back to something I probably said uh, mm-hmm. three, at least three or four years ago. I don't know if this is part of the blog post okay. I did. But okay. the, to me, you know, the NSAMI thing, one of the reasons mm-hmm. why there is, um, I shouldn't say a need, what, to me, one of the things that they were filling in was a void. And it goes okay. back to what we talked about in the beginning. The fact that okay. when you read a typical text on speech mm-hmm. sound disorders, okay. you do not find uh, special populations discussed. Mm-hmm. And if it is, yeah. it's, a, it's, an, it's in a small blurb. And I remember mm-hmm. I know, about 10 years ago, when mm-hmm. I got into my present job, you know, just doing mm-hmm. a literature search on okay. uh, autism spectrum disorders and speech sound disorders. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. a whole lot. Okay. So yeah. it's not. A, and yeah. so I, and you look at the courses offered uh, by yeah. Talk Tools, they are, you know, how much of what they're saying will eventually be backed by evidence? I don't know. 
But they were speaking to a subject area that really nobody else was. And that's what I find so interesting about what you do. Is that, again, you're taking the research and like, hey, I can apply to this population here. And I don't know anyone else who who has done that in the past like you. I really don't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I think my number one piece of advice for working with children with autism is treat the speech motor disorder. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you're going to get amazing gains. And that's another research study that I did is I found that when we treat the speech motor disorder, as I, as I talked to you about earlier, you're going to not only get gains in the speech, but also in the language and also in the social communication realm. You're going to get more comments. And we know that comments are gold. They're golden. We want comments, not requests. We want comments, yeah. languages for social purposes. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, you know, and the other I, thing I, I, I will say again about what you're doing is the fact I really think, and I, I especially, I don't know if it was true before 2010, you know, with the advent of the iPad and the proliferation of mm-hmm. AC apps, um, yeah. in, in my opinion, and just talking to other professionals who work in similar programs such as myself, that there is a tendency to focus on language more so than speech. Yes, um, yeah, yes. You know, Me and too. That's, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the thing uh-huh. is, I'll always, I, I will come back and, and uh, not argue, but I think I've, I've justified it in my head for as long as I've had, so for as long as I've had, just minute by minute, per minute, hour by hour, you know, I'm going to get more gains out of modeling language. It's easier, a single motor pattern using your finger to touch that mm-hmm. screen. Versus speech, which is way more complex. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that AAC isn't a challenge; it can be. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had I, we have IPs, we have goals, we need to show progress. Um, mm-hmm. And God knows, I don't want to have to put a, a goal in front of myself that uh, will produce CVCs if I'm not believing that I, there's a chance yeah. that I can get there. So I, I think that's kind of where we where we live right now, uh, a lot of us. And so mm-hmm. you know, again, I just I had this big. Um, you know, last couple of years, this idea, I'm like, I should be working on speech more. And, you know, it's like, God, I mean, this, yeah. the parents are asking yeah. for it. The parents, you yeah. know, they would, they're yeah. begging for it, you know, <laughs> like, I want them, I want them to talk. Um, some are, are have mm-hmm. uh, uh, better attitudes towards the, the talkers than others. But, yeah. you know, time and time again, they want them to, even if it's a few yeah. words. Yeah. And, 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 you know, let's be honest about it. Like we, we, when people would say, we, I, I hate this when when people would say when a parent asks me when is my is my child going to learn to talk I tell them what you can finish the sentence you should be asking when is my child going to communicate mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and I told them and then, you know and of course we're working on augmentative communication but let's get with the program does it matter whether or not this child learns to talk. Uh, it's the most efficient form of communication when it comes to vocational outcomes, when it comes to social outcomes. Yeah, it really does. Mm-hmm. This is a question that these parents are asking. And that's why it makes me, I'm very happy right now. There's an $8 million grant to uh, Helen Tiger Fleshberg and colleagues out of Boston U. That's like, these children need to learn to talk. And they're not learning to talk. These children, how can we help these children learn to talk? And do you know what they're looking at? That's these right. children, and I, I, by the way, I said this before them, and I'm just kidding, have a motor speech disorder. They have a motor speech disorder. We need to treat the motor speech disorder. How mm-hmm. are we going to treat the motor speech disorder? Um, so, I, so 
Yeah, I like I like your thoughts, which is like, I know we're supposed to do language. I know we're supposed to do this, but you know, yeah, this might be hard, but it's worth the effort. You know, so I, yeah, I, I like the way you're thinking. You're such an original thinker. You're very independent. You don't drink the Kool-Aid of, like you said, of any approach. And oh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I, yeah. I ABA has something mm-hmm. to offer. Um, prompt yeah. has something to offer. I, everybody has yeah. something to offer. And, you know, it's really yeah. our job to kind of distill all that and marry it with what's true and what's not true. And we're, we're constantly trying to uh, reinvent the wheel or at least chisel at it some more. Yeah. And I, and that's another thing I don't, I get really, sus- I don't like programs, which they're like, well, this is what you do. And they have it all spelled out for you and all these steps. And you do this with every child you work with, because you and I know that with every child you work with, if you're, if you're doing the same thing with two children you're working with, you're not doing, <laughs> you're not doing good therapy. Yes. I, yeah. So every session, every child, the, the therapy should, should look differently with each of the children you work with. Um, so, yeah, you know, you know the it, one, you know, the thing you made me think about one of my, uh, my axioms, you know, I, every time I have okay. a, a, a new client, um, you know, you, you always compare back to, you know, previous clients are like, oh, he's like a David I had three years ago. And you're yeah. like, so you think that what worked for him is going to work for the next one. And I cannot tell you how many times it just kicks me in the rear. I'm like, nope, that doesn't, that doesn't hold. Um, yeah, that's yeah. the uniqueness about it's autism. It's amazing to me just how present you have to be. Yeah. Uh, also, also it, it really is a dance. It really is, particularly working with children with autism spectrum disorder. Because if you don't have your game on, you're going to trip and you're going to fall, and it's going to hurt. You're going to pay for. Yeah, you, you can't. You can't walk into a room without all your materials lined up exactly where you need to be. Because the minute you turn your back. <laughs> It's game yeah, over. Yeah, like I've said that before. Like I, I told the, I think, I think the graduate students are going to be in the idle hands are the hands of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be on your toes. And if you're not, you're going to be running down the hall. And I'll, yeah. So, uh, yeah. okay. So to wrap up, I have to say, okay. you know, this is, I, I, from what I've read so far, you know, this book, okay. very original. Lots. I can't wait to oh, get to the video examples. Um, okay. I'm probably gonna. Mm-hmm. I'm probably gonna want to uh, link to at least um, a few, you know, a couple of these okay. YouTube videos that you posted that I think are really okay. interesting. And um, okay. I'm going to, um, you know, I, I think what I'll do is when I'm done, I'll probably make a little blog post too about uh, just oh, summarizing, nice. summarizing some of the things that I really liked about the book. So I'm like I said, I'm only about a third of the way through. And mm-hmm. um, I want to wait a little bit, give it a, a few months, because I'm going to try some of, use some of your ideas with some of my students and kind, oh, of, and like kind, of, and kind of report back on it. Yeah. yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to see it on video, because the research has shown that people learn better from video than live, but be it a student, be it a parent. So I send to my parents, and we talked about this before, when you were taking away all my secrets in our last <laughs> meeting. In our last meeting, I'm like, this is my book. It was a good interview. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I do. I send to my my parents uh, videotapes of therapy so they can learn the cues and so they don't, they can follow through at home. But the research shows that's much better than showing parents live 
Mm. Um, because of the observer effect, I, I think that 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 plays a big role as that parents thinking about how they look and what they're doing, and you know, it's it's mm-hmm. very distracting just being present on life. So, so yeah, I would love. I can't wait to see it. And yeah. is this going to be with schoolers, elementary age? What? What uh, I want to see Jeffrey Steppen videos. Yeah. Okay. So this is going to be an elementary. I'm thinking a specific student right now. Um, okay. My test subject who is in uh, the fourth grade. So. Oh, wonderful. If I can, I if I can get, it. I'm going to see if I can get um, permission from the parents, and if not from him, and I'll just I'll keep looking to find someone that I can. Um, I have several students, so don't worry. <laughs> hopefully, right, hopefully, I can find one uh, to uh, and see what happens with it. Um, I will tell you this. I will tell you this, Jeffrey. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't teach elementary age. Okay. But people from all over the U.S. have emailed me and have said, "Oh my goodness, I worked on. Can you scrape it to me, please?" With this fourth grader, and they have R L Ch J, and that's just the way the complexity works approach works. I haven't worked on Ch. I haven't worked on J. I haven't worked on Ch. I haven't worked on Ch. And it's like no. Those are underlying sounds. Those will those will spontaneously, even those later hard sounds are going to spontaneously develop. It's amazing. I'll take so, a little bit of credit for that yeah. because uh, that episode I did with you had a lot of downloads. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe it was they 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 heard it from you and they were like, I can't believe this. I've been working for years on Chuck. And yeah. for me, what's been good? What for me, what's been good is I used to work on K and G with three-year-olds and it's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Um, they have their tongue back, but it takes everything and their eyes are watering. And now I work on L and R, the neighboring sounds, right? Mm-hmm. K and G will naturally develop at four and a half years of age. Work on the L and R at three. They just don't have that velar strength. And now we're getting to your medical thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, you know, I, I've had a, a lot to digest today. By the way, I, I should tell a listener yeah. too. Maybe I should wait a little longer yeah. because I'm in planning. So I'm not trained in DTTC, but the training is free for mm-hmm. those of you who don't know it out there. And I'm, I'm yeah. signed. I've signed up, but I have to put the time aside. So um, okay, great. Is it Edith Strand the DTTC that you're doing? Yeah, the Edith. Uh, so um, I don't remember what is it, University of Texas or something like that. My coworker yeah. mm-hmm. took it over. She took the course. Um, I yeah. want to say over the summer. And yeah. like I said, it's it's free. You sign up. I can I can link the. Yeah. I'll link in the website and the in the show notes on yeah. this one. And um, no, I mean I it's a I think it's a five hour training. You do it in your own time. Uh, it's a series of private. Yeah. I think they're private links. Uh, YouTube videos like an yeah. hour long each. Um, okay. So I signed up. I just haven't I haven't done it yet. I haven't had the time. But um, I should I should yeah. probably learn that first um before starting i would think oh but it'll be so much more entertaining if you just do it you think i should just do it i want to see this okay well let's see if i can yeah. just jump into this and see and just see what happens student, yeah with your most difficult student of course on day one All right. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being a guest on the show again. I really appreciate it. I've learned some new things I didn't know when we talked uh, five years ago. Um, Kelly Vest can be found at kellyvestslp.com. That's her website. Don't forget to check out that YouTube channel. And don't forget to check out her latest book published by Tima. 
As of right now, April 2021, it is out and ready for purchase. Okay, some random housekeeping. Kelly had mentioned a researcher by the name of Helen Tager Flesberg, and I thought her name sounded familiar. And sure enough, in my in my saved YouTube links, I came across a lecture. Um, it's on YouTube. I'm going to link to this. It's called New Approaches to Understanding Language in Minimally Verbal Autism Spectrum Disorder. What have we learned and what is the future? Uh, it was sponsored by, it was a talk, and it was sponsored by the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I've watched it. It's very good. It talks about the role of apraxia, surprise, surprise, in speech production in children with autism. So check that out. I, I rec- really recommend that one. Um, sorry about the sound quality. Uh, we had some issues of dropping in and out during the talk, but um, hopefully the overall message was uh, well preserved in this episode. Um, don't forget, you can check me out at conversationsandspeech.com. That's my website. If you want to email me directly, it's jeff at conversationsandspeech.com. Send all feedback, positive, negative, whatever, my way. I appreciate it all. And I will see you all next time. 